We are in a series through, uh, or in Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7, particularly verse 6. His name shall be called, and we are um, today focusing on that second name or that second title of Messiah in chapter 9, verse 6, Mighty God. Will you stand with me and let's read our scripture together this morning. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. You may be seated. The entire Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament predicts him, anticipates him, foreshadows him, looks forward to him. The New Testament introduces and explains him. So if we intend to understand what God's word is saying to us, whether in the passage we are addressing this morning or at any time we open the Word of God, uh, to understand, uh, understand that we will lose our way if we take our eyes off of Jesus. In this series, we're examining the names of Jesus given by God through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6. As we saw last week, the names that are given here help us to understand Messiah Jesus because they describe for us some very important aspects of his nature and his character, who he would be and what he would come to do. I was reading a a devotional that we as a family are going through for Advent, reading a section each evening at the dinner table. And the writer, the author of of this little book of devotions made this statement that we, um, we often understand Christmas only in the abstract. And I thought it was an interesting statement. Uh, And, and, and as I thought about it, I thought I rather like it that way. (laughs) I like the, I like the feelings of Christmas. I like the, all of the sensory things that are going on, the lights and the flowers and the candles and the music. 
And, and there's a part of me that doesn't want to get too detailed about Christmas. <laughs> and yet we must, if we're to understand the momentous thing that God was doing in sending his son into the world. And my intent in this series is that we would really examine what this incredible prophet Isaiah has to say to us by the Holy Spirit. A brief word about the prophetic process. And again, not the pathetic process, but the prophetic process. The book of the prophet Isaiah begins with these words. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision which he saw. At chapter 2, we read these words that describe what follows. The, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Again, the word that Isaiah saw. To say that a prophet saw a vision or saw a word from God means that by the enablement of the Spirit of God, he received a message, a divine communication that he was then to communicate to the intended receiver or receivers. Regarding that in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It would be inaccurate for us to say that a prophet himself always understood with perfect clarity the messages he received from God to pass on to others. But when God chose to speak, to reveal a vision, to speak a word to the prophet, it was incumbent upon him uh, to take pains to hear the message fully and to deliver it accurately as God had revealed it. I heard another preacher this week Describe it this way. Imagine Isaiah at the dinner table saying to his wife, Today I received a word from God about Messiah. And his wife says, Well, what was it? What did God say? And the prophet coming back and saying, uh, I know what he said. I'm not sure. I really understand what it means. And what Peter is describing here is a searching, a careful inquiry, a digging in, a listening. 
In the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, beginning at verse 20, he says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, when we read prophetic scripture, we're not reading merely someone's interpretation of something God said, but we're, we're, we're reading the word of God to them and through them for us. And Peter describes this in nautical terms. This idea of being carried along by the Holy Spirit is, is, is kind of the notion of raising your spiritual sail and allowing the wind of God to fill it and to take you wherever he chooses to take you and to accept that from him. So that as we come to the prophecy of Isaiah 9, in verses 1 to 5, God gives the people of Judah and Jerusalem through the prophet Isaiah a promise, as we saw last week, of an exchange of glory for their gloom, of light for their darkness, of joy for the anguish, of peace for the war and oppression that they were experiencing in the moment, and all because of one reason. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's become a popular thing among young expectant parents to do this thing that they call a gender reveal. And this is a gender reveal moment. It told them very clearly, Messiah is coming, and it's a boy. It's a boy. And not that they had any doubt about that fact. I think the expectation always was that Messiah, uh, the one who would come, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, would be a boy. The word translated child here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is in Hebrew, yeled, which means a male child. The word translated son is bane, which means a son. But but to read this statement as nothing more than a glorified gender reveal would be a real mistake. Because this statement tells us so much more about this one who was to come. The announcement reveals both his humanity and his deity. His humanity and his deity. Let's look again. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Now I want you to stay with me carefully here because I'm going to say a few things that aren't normally said exactly this way. But will you notice with me that the child is born, the son is not? You say, well, where are you going with that? Go to Luke chapter 2 with me, verses 1 through 7. In those days, familiar passage, right? A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Mary gave birth. She gave birth. Matthew records it quite simply. Chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. By contrast, the Bible is clear in saying that the Son was given. Now, I'm not talking about two different people here. I'm talking about the same person. But the Bible is clear regarding the Son to say that the Son was given. Jesus himself, John 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. From God's perspective, the Son was given. There's a giving, there's a sending on God's part. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we read this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Again, the sending. Born of woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sends his son, Jesus, is born. What's the point? Why does this matter? Well, it matters because of what it tells us about Messiah Jesus. And follow me here. What he was, he now is. What he was, he now is. Namely, eternal God, creator and sustainer of the universe. There's a unanimity among the New Testament writers in this regard. John 1 John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, is introduced with this prologue, if you will. In the beginning, where have we seen that those three words together before? Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John says, in the beginning was the Word. Let me pause there, because that Word... Word is logos. And to the Greeks, the logos was the, the essential meaning of everything. It was the essence of, of all that is. And John adopts that word to describe the Son of God. In the beginning was the essence of all that is. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So He was. He was with God, in the sense that there's a, a distinction. And he was God, no distinction. He was, he was with God, and he was God. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, picks up the same theme. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn means the preeminent one over all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the creator of everything, visible and invisible, physical and spiritual. And notice all things were created not only through him, but for him. Why do we exist? We exist for him. And he is before all things, which is in part a way of saying that he precedes everything, and in him all things hold together. What What's the glue that holds this crazy universe together? What, what, what holds it all in balance so that it doesn't spin into chaos? It's Jesus. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 1, the very beginning of his letter, In these last days, he, that is God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe. How? By the word of his power. The universe keeps existing, keeps staying in balance, keeps being what it is, because Jesus says so. See, what he was, eternal God, creator and sustainer of the universe, he now is. He has always been, He has always been God, the Son, and at no point has he ever ceased to be the eternal God. However, what he now is, he once was not. He, the eternal Son of God, is now, by way of the incarnation, the enfleshment, the Son of Man. Son of Man. Jesus' favorite expression for himself in the days of his ministry on earth. Son of Man, taken from the prophet Daniel. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read about that incarnation. And the Word, 
became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul wrote to the Philippians and said, He, that is Jesus, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And in Hebrews two fourteen to 15, Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. That's you and I. We have physical bodies. He himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery to the fear of death. What he now is, Son of Man, he once was not. He is eternally the Son of God, creator and sustainer of all things. Our LifePoint Church statement of beliefs says this about the triune God. We believe that there is one living and true God, the creator and ruler of the universe, who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, These three are co-equal in every divine attribute and are one God. You see, unlike the, for example, the Mormon doctrine regarding Jesus, the Word of God tells us that prior to the incarnation, there had never been a time when God's Son was human. In the incarnation, he willingly and intentionally took on flesh and blood becoming fully human for the express purpose of accomplishing our salvation. And what he now is, he will forever be. Both Son of God and Son of Man. Forever he is fully God and fully man. How can this be? How did this come about? Mary asked the same question of the angel Gabriel when he appeared to her. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And we could stay right there and dive into that pool, couldn't we? 
And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? In other words, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. I'm betrothed, but I'm not married. And I'm, we're not sexually active. So what's up? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And there it is. How, how could this be? The work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High. Listen, this is not, again, as in Mormonism and in many ancient mythologies, this is not God perversely having sex with a human woman. That is not at all what is being described here. The God who spoke creation into existence, the Spirit of God that hovered over the waters in Genesis 1, will cause Mary to conceive And in that conception and in that interaction, she will conceive a child who will be holy, sinless, and who will be the Son of God. Every attribute of God is true in Jesus, the Son of God. Every attribute of humanity is true in him as well, with that one exception, that sole exception of sin. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And it is precisely because he is a fully human, yet perfectly sinless, that he could be our perfect substitute, that is to die in our place, to die our death, and God's perfect sacrifice for our sins. At the cross, Jesus died in our place, bearing our sins in his own body, representative man and offering at the cross the final sacrifice that made payment in full for all of our sin. So we can say with perfect confidence that to see Jesus is to see God. When Philip first introduced Nathaniel to Jesus... Nathaniel quickly recognized his true identity, John 1. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we've found him 
we've found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Bucota? <laughs> Little insignificant place. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, uh, How do you know me? And it's, it's one of those moments where you're meeting someone for the first time and they're telling you things about you that they couldn't possibly know. And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And notice Nathanael's conclusion. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. <laughs> In that moment, the spirit, Spirit's revelation, I don't know, we're not overtly told that. But Nathanael didn't in, conclude that he was a magician or a seer or merely a prophet. He says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And you'll recall that Simon Peter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, also confessed him as God's son in Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus, with his disciples, were visiting. And Jesus said to them, well, who are people saying that I am? What's the buzz out there? And and they said, well, some think you're Elijah, some Jeremiah, one of the prophets, some say John the Baptist. Okay. They said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And remember that Jesus affirmed that and said, uh, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You didn't come to this by your own imagination, Peter, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. So it's no wonder that the same Spirit of God moved Isaiah the prophet to include in this list of names of the coming Messiah in chapter 9, verse 6, the name Mighty God. Mighty God. In Hebrew... El Gibor, El meaning God, Gibor, mighty, and the word pictures God in his strength, in his might, God as a warrior, God as a champion. And he says of him that the government will be upon his shoulders. We ask the government of what? And the implied answer, I think, is the government of all creation, visible and invisible. Strong shoulders, indeed. Mighty God. When we look to the Psalms, we find in Psalm 45.3 that the mighty God is clothed with splendor and majesty. In chapter 50, verse 1, he speaks with absolute authority. In 45, verse 4, the mighty God establishes victory. And here in Isaiah 9, 4, he removes the burden, the oppression of the captive. David, in Psalm 132, calls him the mighty one of Jacob, the mighty one of Israel. 
And it's interesting that the pregnant Mary referred to him this way in her song of praise at the home of Elizabeth. You may recall that Mary, after realizing that she was pregnant, that that what the angel had said was coming true, left town and went up into the hill country to the home of her relative Elizabeth. And when she arrived at Elizabeth's home, all kinds of things started happening. Not least among them, Elizabeth saying to her, young Mary, pregnant, probably not yet showing, without any external indicators, without any advanced communication, Elizabeth says to Mary, how is it? that the mother of my Lord should visit me. And in that interaction, and when Elizabeth had finished saying things that she could only know by the Holy Spirit, Mary broke into song and said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. David and others also spoke of the mighty God as the Lord of hosts. For example, in Psalm 24, a psalm that's often read on Psalm Sunday when we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And and the scripture that I read is our call to worship today. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The name Lord of hosts, though it is not included in the lyrics, is the name that we are singing about when we sing about the God of angel armies. It pictures Messiah Jesus in command of angelic forces equipped and organized for war. The Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, Yahweh Sabaoth. And you may recall that as Joshua and his forces prepared to do battle against the city of Jericho, that he was met by the Lord of hosts outside the city. He identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. Beginning at verse 13 of Joshua 5, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. I want to just pause right there for a moment. Last week we talked about the angel of the Lord, that when you see 
the, the definite article, the, in front of angel of the Lord, most often you're referring to, it's referring to a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearing in human form of the Son of God. Not an incarnation, but an appearing in human form. I believe that that is what we are looking at here. The phrase, the angel of the Lord, the title is not present, but the title is the commander of the army of the Lord. And notice what happens. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, besides the title by which the man identifies himself, I want you to notice three other things. The first is this, that Joshua fell face down and worshipped him. He worshipped him. He understood that this was one who was worthy of worship. Second, he calls him Lord. Lord. And third, when was the last time we heard someone say, Take off your sandals from your feet, for you are standing on holy ground. Moses, right? At the burning bush in Exodus. And who was he encountering? Yahweh, the the God of Israel. Tell them Yahweh has sent you. Now, Now check this out. The writer of Hebrews, let me back up first. Who is this that Joshua encountered? Who was worthy of worship, whom he called Lord, and who told him to take off his sandals because where he, the place where he's standing is holy ground, made holy by the presence of God. So check out the the writer of Hebrews chapter 1, who penned these words. When he, that is God, brings the firstborn, that is Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And in that familiar passage in Luke chapter 2, an angel of the Lord appears to some, an angel, (laughs) an angel of the Lord appears to some shepherds, tending their sheep by night on the hillsides outside Bethlehem and announces to them that over in Bethlehem, over yonder, a Savior has been born to them who is Christ the Lord. Three titles. Savior, one who saves. Christ, which is the Greek equivalent of Messiah. And Lord, Kurios in the Greek, parallel to Hebrew, Yahweh. And watch what happens next. And as you do, keep Hebrews 1.6 in mind. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. A multitude of what? 
of the heavenly host. How many is a multitude? I don't know. A lot. It's a crowd. It's a throng. It's a great number. And what does that tell us? It tells us that these were not the cherubim and seraphim that surround the throne in heaven, but these are angelic warriors, a multitude of the heavenly host, an, an angel army. And what are they doing? They're doing what God said they would do when he brought the firstborn into the world. They are worshiping the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. They're worshiping the firstborn. See, something of cosmic significance is happening that is far beyond our understanding, and they are prepared for battle in the heavenlies, in the spiritual realm. No wonder the shepherds were so terrified. These weren't blonde, blue-eyed women in flowing robes and fluffy wings. These were angelic warriors prepared for battle. See, I could go on. We, we could talk about the miracles that Jesus performed, which were demonstrations of his power. They were active parables underscoring his identity as mighty God. He wasn't doing magic when he performed the miracles, but he was displaying his majesty, demonstrating that the laws and the elements of nature are fully under his absolute control. The agent of all creation, the one who created it all, continues to be the Lord of all creation. We could talk about the appearance at the close of the book of Revelation of a a king on a white horse, surrounded by angels on white horses ready to do battle, and his name is Faithful and True. And on his thigh is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But what does all of this mean? Where do we go with it? How do we take this and, and, and bring it to some semblance of application? Jesus, having been crucified, dead, and buried, and then having been raised out from the dead, met with his disciples some 40 days later on a hillside in Galilee before he ascended into heaven. And there he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I, who have all authority in heaven and on earth, have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is the fact that he is mighty God. It is the fact that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth that becomes the reason that you and I are to evangelize the world, beginning in our own homes, in our own neighborhoods, in our own workplaces. 
It is because he is mighty God that the church exists to make disciples that, that the world would know him. See, mighty God is able to save. Chapter 1 of Matthew's Gospel tells us that when Joseph was considering his options in light of Mary's pregnancy, among them divorce, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you, Joseph, are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The angel has said that last thing to Mary as well. They were to give their child the name Jesus, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. He came to save us from our sins. And so the question really is this, will you allow him to be your savior? Will you allow him to be your savior? Will you allow him to be who and what he is and what he wants to be to you? Later on, Jesus said to his disciples, in me, you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble. What a concept. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That, that phrase, have overcome, has as its root word, Nike. You know, just do it, the swoosh. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the winner. What does that mean? It means that he's mighty God and you and I are not. It also means that there's no problem that you are facing right now in your life or ever will face in life that is too difficult for him, that his power cannot overcome on your behalf. So you're faced with a choice. And perhaps a dilemma. Will you allow him to be mighty God in your life and to fight your battles for you? Or will you, like Frank Sinatra, insist on doing it your way? You have a choice. Mighty God is also willing to save. He's not only able to save, he is willing to save. And you might say, well, you don't know what I've done. I'm, I'm certainly not worthy of God's forgiveness. If, if you only knew my sin resume, you would know that I'm not worthy of his saving. I'm not worthy of his help in my life. And Jesus would say to you, I have already helped you. I died for you. And if you think your sin is so much greater and so much more exotic than, than the death of the Son of God on your behalf, then you've got another thing coming. I died for you. I died in your place. I died your death. I bore your sins in my body on the cross. I knew you before you were born. I knew what you would do. I know what you have done. I know what you're still going to do. And I know that you will still commit sin, and I know all of that because I'm God. I created you. I knew you. I knew every day of your life before there was yet one of them. And surprise, I love you. I love you. 
and I want to forgive your sin. I want to begin a personal relationship with you, make you a new person, give you a new life, cancel the debt of your sin. All of my power, all of my resources are available to you and for you. See, the Apostle Peter wrote that the Lord is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's patient. It doesn't mean that there is not an end to his patience. The Bible says that now is the appointed time, now is the day of salvation. And in that word time, is the word is not chronos, in terms of the passage of time, but a time, a window of opportunity in time, a window that will someday close. The Lord is patient toward you, not willing that you should perish, but that you should reach repentance. What does it mean to repent? It means, first of all, to change your mind. It begins here, to change your mind about the direction in which your life is going, the things that your life is all about, and then actually to change Direction. And in this case, it's deciding to stop trying to be mighty God and let the real one take over. Mighty God is able to save, he's willing to save, and he is finally, he is waiting to save. And Jesus would say to you today, Look, I'm I'm standing at the door, I'm knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'm I'll come in. And as friends, we'll enjoy a deep personal relationship. Imagine that. A deep personal relationship, a friendship with the one whom you have repeatedly offended, but who created you, who died for you, who loves you with an everlasting love. And so the question becomes, will you open the door? Will you open your heart? Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ Son of God, Son of Man, mighty God, today. I hope that you will. Let's pray together. Lord, these things are too far beyond us. We observe them, we speak of them, but our language is so inadequate to to express them. But Lord, by your Spirit, would you move in us? Would you move us to worship? Would you move us to obedience, to submission, to your lordship, to your authority? Would you move us to repentance of our sin? And would you, Lord, by your spirit, enable us because this too is beyond our power but would you enable us to surrender to you as mighty God and allow you the rule of our lives? We look to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.